Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Hello, everyone. I just wanted to say thank you all for listening. It means a lot. That's all. Five cases for you this week, and I know you'll enjoy. Going to start out with some odds and ends, which I usually do at the top of the episode, but this week, there's just too many. First, on Friday, the Ninth Circuit remanded its en banc decision in Marinelle Arena. Back to the three-judge panel for further consideration. This wasn't really surprising because the Supreme Court remanded it back following the Supreme Court's paraded decision. What this means is that possibly the Ninth Circuit will now decide, in Marinelle Arena, for the third time, but now in light of Pareda, who bears the burden at the relief stage to convince an immigration judge whether a criminal statute is divisible or not as a matter of law. As I've said before, I don't read Pareda as having answered that issue, but in light of the general feel of Pareda and the Ninth Circuit three-judge panel's previous decision in Marinelle Arena, my hopes aren't great. Stay tuned. Next, this week, the Fourth Circuit amended its Big Amaya decision on particular social groups, discussed on episode 40 of the podcast. Not gonna lie, after skimming the two decisions side by side, I couldn't figure out what they amended. But they must have amended something, and I don't think it hurts non-citizens. And finally, the Eighth Circuit amended its Barahona decision on serious non-political crimes, discussed on episode 41. Seems like the Eighth Circuit just deleted a few things. But it's clearly amendment week. Now, on to the decisions, that if they don't behave, will one day make their way back onto the podcast for amendment. So starting off with Matter of Menza, published by the BIA. This case is about inadmissibility for having made fraud or willful misrepresentations. 
In order to adjust to LPR status and obtain a green card, a non-citizen must be admissible to the United States, meaning that they must not fall within any of the grounds of inadmissibility contained at Section 212 of the INA. One of those sections is Section 212A6CI, which makes inadmissible a non-citizen who has attempted to obtain an immigration benefit through fraud or willful misrepresentation. I believe the BIA last addressed this provision in 2018 with Matter of Valdez. And here we are again. Miss Menza is from Ghana, and she entered the United States on a tourist visa in 2005. She overstayed, and in 2010, she married a U.S. citizen. Miss Menza's husband filed an I-130 petition for her with USCIS, and Miss Menza then filed an adjustment of status application, which USCIS granted meaning that pursuant to INA Section 216, Ms. Menza became a conditional LPR, known as a CLPR. A CLPR has all of the same rights as a regular LPR, except 90 days before the first two years in CLPR status ends, the spouse and conditional LPR must jointly petition USCIS to remove the condition. USCIS will do so if, after reviewing the marriage again, it believes that the marriage is legit. But if the couple doesn't petition to remove the condition, or if the conditional LPR doesn't file on her own and convince USCIS that she meets an exception to the joint filing requirement, USCIS automatically terminates the CLPR status and puts the non-citizen in removal proceedings for an IJ to consider, in the case of a denied joint petition, whether DHS has met its burden to establish that USCIS was right to deny the joint petition. If USCIS doesn't meet its burden, the IJ will remove the condition for the CLPR, making her a full-fledged LPR. Quite the process. Ms. Menza and her husband timely and jointly petitioned to remove the condition, but they failed their USCIS interview. This was due in no small part to the fact that Miss Menza had a child with another man, her eventual second husband, while still married to her first husband. USCIS determined that the marriage was not entered into in good faith, terminated Miss Menza's CLPR status, and initiated removal proceedings. While in removal proceedings, Miss Menza divorced her first husband and married her second husband, who filed another I-130 petition for her with USCIS. USCIS approved that second I-130 petition. Kind of surprising, as USCIS essentially found that Ms. Menza committed marriage fraud, which would otherwise bar approval of a second I-130 petition under INA Section 204C. With the second I-130 approved, Ms. Menza, who was now in removal proceedings, applied for adjustment of status with the immigration judge through the second husband, as she is allowed to do under matter of Stockwell from 91. But the IJ denied, based on an INA Section 212A6CI finding, concluding that Ms. Menza previously attempted to procure adjustment of status through a fraudulent marriage to her first husband, based on statements that she made during her USCIS interview to remove the condition on her CLPR status. And here, the BIA affirmed. The BIA rejected Ms. Menza's argument, which I kind of just implied, that USCIS's grant of the I-130 petition filed by the second husband necessarily shows that no fraud was committed with the first marriage and the adjustment of status process. 
Because after all, USCIS approved that second I-130 petition, meaning that they did not make a 204C fraud finding. The BIA said that didn't matter, and IJ can still make his or her own fraud determination. But both approved I-130 petitions do at least constitute evidence that no fraud ever occurred. Turning then to the substance of the fraud or misrepresentation finding, the BIA cited to a bunch of law, holding that to meet the standard, a statement need not be made under oath, but must be material, and quote, deliberately made with knowledge of its falsity, end quote. Statements are material if, under an old Supreme Court case, they have a, quote, natural tendency to affect the official decision of the adjudicator, end quote. Or if the statement, quote, tends to shut off a line of inquiry that would have predictably disclosed other relevant facts, end quote. All of these standards and quotes have room for maneuvering, so make sure that you apply them to the specific facts and circumstances of your case. Here, the BIA held that at a minimum, Ms. Menza made a misrepresentation when she told the USCIS officer that she was currently residing with her first husband at the time of the USCIS interview, when in fact the evidence indicated she was not. All right, fine. But was the misrepresentation material? After all, the relevant inquiry is not whether the marriage was in good shape at the time of the interview to remove the condition, but rather whether it was bona fide from the start. The BIA gives this materiality analysis only four sentences, stating that Ms. Menza's statement, quote, had a natural tendency to affect, end quote, the USCIS officer's conclusion. But did it? Would knowing that the couple no longer lived together in 2014 affect the officer's conclusion that they didn't validly marry two years prior? Particularly as USCIS previously approved an I-130 and adjustment of status application for that marriage? Maybe. I'd like a bit more analysis on this, as it's often where the rubber meets the road in these cases. Finally, the BIA noted that Ms. Menza could have applied for an INA Section 212I waiver to waive the fraud if she had showed that her removal would cause extreme hardship to her second husband. But she didn't apply. A decision adverse to non-citizens based ostensibly in burdens. I've got a few more thoughts. To me, this decision creates a somewhat unfair framework that burdens the non-citizen in a manner that probably would not be allowed in other areas of law. As the BIA notes, had USCIS made an INA Section 204C finding on that first I-130, and therefore denied the second husband's I-130, USCIS would have borne the burden on appeal to defend its 204C finding. But now after this decision, to avoid that but reach the same result, all USCIS has to do is approve an I-130 but deny a subsequent adjustment of status by stating that fraud occurred. Because then, the non-citizen will bear the burden in removal proceedings, rather than USCIS having to defend its 204C finding on appeal. Begs the question, then, why does INA Section 204C even exist if USCIS can reach the same result through other means? Not only that, but as we all know, IJs lack authority to grant an I-130 petition, and therefore grant an immigration benefit in immigration court. But this decision, and others before it, makes clear that IJs can adjudicate the validity of a marriage and deny an immigration benefit, notwithstanding an approved I-130. 
These are double and triple burdens baked into the process that seems a bit too much to me, and at a minimum, often serves to delay adjudications by many years. Finally, a bit more on petitions to remove conditions. It can be a complicated process in immigration court, and I encourage you to review INA Section 216 if a case comes your way. For example, while DHS has the burden when USCIS has denied a joint petition, the non-citizen has the burden to establish eligibility for a waiver of the joint filing requirement in immigration court, if relevant. Now, no matter who has the burden, the non-citizen can supplement the record before the IJ, but arguably, a non-citizen cannot apply for a waiver of the joint filing requirement before an IJ in the first instance. She must have applied for the waiver before USCIS and had it denied. But, as I and many others read Matter of Anderson from 1994, an IJ must grant a continuance for USCIS to adjudicate a waiver even when submitted for the first time while a non-citizen is in removal proceedings. And Anderson wasn't vacated by Jeff Sessions during his full frontal assault on continuances during his short tenure as Attorney General. Like I said, petitions to remove conditions can get messy. And that is Matter of Menza. Next is Aristi Rosa v. Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on March 16, 2021. This case is about pardons. And as the date of the decision indicates, this decision was actually issued a month ago, but it was unpublished at the time. Oil, however, moved to publish it, which the Third Circuit granted, and here we are. Worth a shot, practitioners. Act like oil. Move the circuits to publish your favorable decisions and help make some good law for everyone. Mr. Aristi Rosa is from the Dominican Republic and was admitted to the U.S. as a lawful permanent resident in 1993. Several years later, he was convicted of attempted sale of cocaine in New York and was thereafter found removable in immigration court for having been convicted of a law relating to a controlled substance and the related aggravated felony provision of removability. He was not physically removed, and in December 2017, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo fully and unconditionally pardoned Mr. Aristi Rosa. So he moved to reopen his immigration case, arguing that he was no longer removable. The immigration judge denied, and the BIA dismissed the appeal, relying on matter of se, published by the BIA in 2003, which held that certain, quote, removable offenses, such as controlled substance violations under Section 237A2B of the INA, are not covered by the INA's pardon waiver provision, end quote. Quite the unique case we have here. The Third Circuit affirmed the BIA in this now-published decision, beginning with a lot of overview of the INA and pardons. So as we know, the provisions of the INA that make an LPR removable are found at INA Section 237. The inadmissibility provisions, like the fraud ground that we just discussed, are found at Section 212 and apply to non-citizens seeking to enter the United States or who are seeking to adjust status within the United States. But for LPRs, and according to the Third Circuit, Section 237A2 describes two broad categories of removable offenses. Quote, general crimes, and controlled substance offenses, end quote. The general crime provisions at INA Section 237A2A, CIMTs, aggravated felonies, etc., 
contain an express pardon waiver at section 237A2A-VI. Applicable where the non-citizen, quote, subsequent to the criminal conviction, has been granted a full and unconditional pardon by the President of the United States or by the Governor of any of the several states, end quote. But INA Section 237A2B, the provision that makes LPRs removable for convictions relating to a controlled substance, has no such pardon provision. This means that while Governor Cuomo's pardon eliminated the aggravated felony basis for Mr. Aresti Rosa's removability, it did not eliminate the other basis for removal, that the conviction was one relating to a controlled substance. The Third Circuit held that because there's an express pardon for subsection A2A, it cannot read in an implicit pardon for section A2B. The court also held that even though Governor Cuomo pardoned Mr. Aresti Rosa, his offense still constitutes a conviction under immigration law, as defined in INA Section 101A48. That section requires, among other things, a formal adjudication of guilt for state criminal action to constitute an immigration conviction. The Third Circuit held that notwithstanding Governor Cuomo's pardon, Mr. Aristi Rosa's conviction qualified because, according to the Third, if it read the governor's pardon as negating the previous formal adjudication of guilt, it would render superfluous the express pardon provision that applies to INA Section 237A2A, and which does not apply to subsection A2B. Put another way, there'd be no reason for the express pardon provision at Section 237, because any pardon would then fail to meet the definition of a conviction under Section 101A48. Not gonna lie, I don't like the result, but it's hard to argue with that logic. Finally, apparently the White House Office of Legal Counsel, or OLC, that powerful entity whose legal opinion helped shield President Trump from criminal prosecution, held in 1995 that, notwithstanding the lack of an express pardon for the Controlled Substance Offense Removability Provision, a, quote, full presidential pardon would extinguish the immigration effects of any federal crime, end quote. But the Third Circuit held that the OLC's analysis, based on constitutional separation of power principles, doesn't apply to gubernatorial pardons. So Mr. Aristi Rosa, while not convicted of anything, remains removable. And to put icing on the cake, the Third Circuit footnoted that the BIA, as an administrative agency, need not give full faith and credit to actions of state legislatures or judiciaries. Unfortunate case all around for non-citizens, so let's just move right along and forget that it exists. And that is Aristi Rosa, the Attorney General of the U.S. Moving on, we have Arroyo v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on April 14, 2021. This case is also about controlled substance offenses. Mr. Arroyo is from Mexico and was brought into the United States without authorization in 2000 at the age of 8 years old. In 2011, at the age of 18, and similar to U.S. citizens who I knew growing up, he pled guilty to violation of Iowa Code Section 124.4015, which criminalizes the simple possession of controlled substances. Looks like he possessed marijuana, an act legal in about half the country at this point. Thereafter, he received DACA, but in 2018, he pled guilty to disorderly conduct in violation of Iowa Code Section 723.42 
following an original charge of domestic assault. It appears that USCIS revoked his DACA due to that offense, and DHS decided to initiate removal proceedings. But not because of the disorderly conduct conviction, because that conviction doesn't make him removable, but rather because he was unlawfully brought into the U.S. at eight years old, he no longer has DACA, and because of his simple possession conviction at the age of 18. Now, Mr. Arroyo is definitely removable for being brought into the U.S. without authorization, even though he was only eight years old at the time, because Congress never passed the DREAM Act. And so, Mr. Arroyo applied for pretty much the only form of relief available to him, cancellation of removal for non-LPRs under INA Section 240AB, a very difficult form of relief to obtain. But if his simple possession conviction matches the definition of a controlled substance offense defined at INA Section 212A2AII, he's legally barred from relief, which again is a hard form of relief to obtain anyway. Whether the conviction is a match is governed by the categorical approach, and like so many controlled substance offenses, the Iowa Possession Statute is broader than the federal definition of a controlled substance offense, because Iowa criminalizes possession of substances not listed on the federal controlled substance list. But in this case, the BIA agreed with the BIA that the Iowa statute is divisible. Quote, Factors material to the divisibility analysis may include the existence of different punishments for different alternatives, the state's own treatment of the alternatives in the charging practices and jury instructions, or the state's allowance for separate convictions under the state controlled substance statute for two different types of controlled substances. End quote. Here, the Eighth Circuit found the statute divisible because it provides for, quote, different punishments for the simple possession of marijuana than for the simple possession of other controlled substances, end quote. So the theory goes, if someone possessed marijuana, a jury would have to make that finding, because it would then change the punishment. This notwithstanding the fact that the different punishments for marijuana as compared to other controlled substances probably exists, if I had to guess because marijuana possession is less severe than possessing other controlled substances. So Iowa's probably trying to be accommodating of marijuana possession, but in doing so has enabled the offense to subject an 18-year-old non-citizen to removal. Applying the modified categorical approach, the court found the conviction documents show that Mr. Arroyo possessed marijuana, meaning that his offense relates to a controlled substance offense and that he's barred from obtaining cancellation of removal. Now, Mr. Arroyo had filed a motion to reconsider based on new arguments, which the IJ and the BIA denied, based on a finding that his arguments could have and should have been brought the first time around. The Eighth Circuit affirmed that too, because, quote, arguments available prior to an IJ's ruling may not be raised for the first time in a motion to reconsider, end quote. Unless, of course, they're based on changes to the law itself. So Mr. Arroyo is set to be removed to Mexico. I have a few more thoughts on the categorical approach. In making this holding, the Eighth Circuit goes out of its way to state that, quote, we limit our holding based on Iowa's unique treatment of marijuana and do not reach the issue of whether Section 124.4015 is divisible as between other controlled substances, end quote. So paradoxically, if Mr. Arroyo possessed a less socially acceptable substance, like heroin, he may have avoided removal, 
because the Eighth Circuit is holding that the statute is only divisible as to whether the defendant possessed marijuana or he did not, and heroin would be in the did-not category that includes other substances not listed in the Federal Controlled Substance list. Pretty absurd result. And another reminder that contrary to some recent BIA decisions, statutes, including drug possession statutes, must be relevantly divisible for the IJ or the BIA to then dive into the modified categorical analysis and determine what substance a non-citizen possessed. And finally, what about Gonzalez v. Wilkinson, discussed on episode 46 of the podcast, wherein the Eighth Circuit held that a similar Florida offense doesn't meet the federal definition of a controlled substance offense because the Florida definition of marijuana is broader than the federal definition of marijuana. Does Iowa similarly criminalize possession of seeds and stems? It might. If it does, Gonzales would seem to govern. And, as Gonzales is a new law that came out well after the IJ and BIA denied Mr. Arroyo's case, perhaps it's worth filing another motion to reconsider. And that is Arroyo v. Garland. Next up is Zarate Alvarez v. Garland, published by the Tenth Circuit on March 23, 2021. Note the date. Yet another decision that Oil succeeded on in unpublished form and successfully moved a circuit to publish, this time on crimes of child abuse, child neglect, or child abandonment. Mr. Zarate Alvarez entered the U.S. unlawfully from Mexico, and many years later he was deemed removable in immigration court. But because he had been in this country for over 10 years and believed he could establish exceptional or extremely unusual hardship to his U.S. citizen spouse, parent, or child, he applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 248B. The problem is, is that years before, he had pled guilty to knowing or reckless child abuse in violation of Colorado Statute Section 18-6-401-1A and 7BI. Similar to the Eighth Circuit decision we just discussed, if that conviction matches the definition of a crime of child abuse, child neglect, or child abandonment within the meaning of INA Section 237A2EI, Mr. Zarate Alvarez is ineligible for cancellation of removal. The IJ and the BIA held that that was the case, and the Tenth Circuit affirmed. Applying the categorical approach, the Tenth Circuit first deferred to the BIA's recent definition of INA Section 237A2EI in Matter of Velasquez Herrera, Matter of Saram, and Matter of Mendoza Osario. Those decisions expanded the BIA's previous definition of the offense first used in Matter of Rodriguez Rodriguez. And now, to qualify as an INA Section 237A2EI offense, the law requires an analysis of, quote, the extent to which the non-citizen's conduct must cause injury to or present a risk of harm to the child, end quote, considering the mens rea, or mental state required of the crime, and the type of harm required, or the type of harm that's at risk. Notably, in matter of Saram, the BIA held that even crimes that, quote, criminalize conduct that does not result in actual injury to a child, end quote, can make a non-citizen removable under INA Section 237A2EI, so long as it requires a, quote, sufficiently high risk of harm to the child, end quote. Here, Mr. Zarate Alvarez's crime is somewhere in the middle of that definition. 
it requires merely knowing a reckless conduct that, quote, permits a child to be unreasonably placed in a situation that possesses a threat of injury to the child's life or health, end quote. But the BIA held that mens rea of knowing a recklessness sufficient in Mendoza-Osario, and the Tenth Circuit deferred to that decision in this decision. So the Tenth Circuit rejected Mr. Zarate Alvarez's argument that the Colorado conviction doesn't require a sufficiently culpable mental state. This aligns with decisions out of at least the Second and Third Circuits. Then, relying on matter of Saram and Colorado state court decisions, the Tenth Circuit held that Colorado always requires that the, quote, risk of harm element be at least a reasonable probability of injury, end quote. This is a sufficiently high risk of harm, according to the BIA and the Tenth Circuit. So the Colorado statute is a match to INA Section 237A2EI, which means that it bars Mr. Zarate Alvarez from non-LPR cancellation of removal. One more thing to help guide your future cases. Although it seems a bit up in the air exactly what degree of harm will qualify under the BIA's many decisions on this issue, it's at least worth noting that at a minimum, under the BIA's latest decision in matter of Mendoza-Osario, quote, a statute that does not require any particular likelihood of harm to a child would not include a sufficiently high risk of harm to a child to qualify as INA child abuse, end quote. And under Tenth Circuit precedent, that definition will not include statutes that require merely, quote, non-injurious criminally negligent conduct, end quote. So that's at least a starting point. And that is Zarate Alvarez v. Garland. Finally, we have Alvarado Herrera v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on April 13th, 2021. Couldn't end the episode without an asylum-type decision, could I? Mr. Alvarado Herrera is from Honduras and was ordered removed in 2013 by DHS, not an immigration judge, through the expedited removal process usually reserved for non-citizens apprehended near the border. He re-entered unlawfully in 2017, and DHS reinstated the prior order of removal against him. But because he expressed a fear of persecution or torture by the 18th Street Gang in Honduras, he was given a reasonable fear interview. In support, he stated that years prior, while serving as a bodyguard in Honduras, he had engaged in a shootout and defended his employer when 18th Street Gang members, dressed as police, tried to assassinate the employer. The gang succeeded, also killed Mr. Alvarado Herrera's co-bodyguard, and shot Mr. Alvarado Herrera, who obtained medical treatment and then went into hiding. During the shootout, Mr. Alvarado Herrera and the other bodyguards killed an 18th Street gang member as well, and later, two of the surviving bodyguards were killed in retaliation. Mr. Alvarado Herrera learned that the gang was looking for him and fled to the U.S. A DHS officer found that Mr. Alvarado Herrera lacked a reasonable fear, and an immigration judge affirmed that finding meaning that Mr. Alvarado Herrera was not placed in withholding-only proceedings before an IJ. And it's that decision that's being challenged here before the Ninth Circuit. 
The Ninth Circuit reviewed the immigration judge's affirmance of DHS's no reasonable fear finding and held that it was unsupported by substantial evidence. Now, reasonable fear interviews are a creature of regulation, and they're a bit strange. Necessarily, the non-citizen has already been ordered removed and physically removed at least once before. And quote, during the review hearing, the immigration judge conducts a de novo review of the record prepared by the asylum officer and may, but need not, accept additional evidence and testimony from the non-citizen, end quote. But before we get there, to even get to the reasonable fear interview stage, there must first be a lawful removal order for DHS to reinstate. Mr. Alvarado Herrera first argued that the 2013 removal order was deficient because the expedited removal regulations require that a supervisor review and approve it before it becomes final. And here, the 2013 removal order was not signed by a DHS supervisor. Rather, a box was checked stating that a supervisor had approved it over the phone. Also, apparently the record lacks the entire expedited removal form, and so the record lacks evidence to show that Mr. Alvarado Herrera signed his expedited removal and acknowledged receipt, as the regulations require. The Ninth Circuit didn't really address these very technical arguments because it held that it lacks jurisdiction to consider them. And that is because, under Ninth Circuit precedent, the reinstatement statute precludes most collateral attacks on the validity of the removal order being reinstated unless the petitioner can show that a, quote, gross miscarriage of justice, end quote, occurred during the earlier removal proceedings. Not met here. And in any event, that standard doesn't even apply to reinstatement of expedited removal orders. So really, there's no review at all except in very narrow circumstances that must be brought in federal habeas proceedings. The Ninth Circuit also upheld the legality of the reasonable fear process employed by DHS and the immigration courts under the familiar Chevron framework. But as I mentioned at the top of the case, the Ninth Circuit did reverse the IJ's no reasonable fear determination as to torture. Now first, the Ninth upheld the IJ's finding that there was no reasonable possibility that Mr. Alvarado Herrera could establish a nexus to a protected ground, such that withholding of removal under the INA was warranted. However, quote, given Alvarado Herrera's specific assertions of police complicity in the 18th Street Gang's violent acts, end quote, the IJ erred in holding that his fear lacked a plausible connection to the Honduran government or that the Honduran government acquiesced. This is due in part to the evidence of, quote, widespread police corruption in Honduras, end quote. Moreover, the asylum officer's denial, and the IJ's affirmance of that denial, based on a finding that Mr. Alvarado Herrera lacked corroborating evidence, is wrong. Because due to the expedited nature of the interview, often when the non-citizen is a very recent entrant into the United States and is in detention, quote, they cannot realistically be expected to produce for the asylum officer's review the kind of detailed country condition evidence that would be introduced during a merits hearing before an immigration judge, end quote. Rather, and here's your quote to use, quote, if a non-citizen provides an otherwise credible account concerning his fear of torture, his own statements can supply an adequate support for claims about country conditions, end quote sufficient to pass the reasonable fear interview. So Mr. Alvarado Herrera gets to present his cat claim before an IJ. 
Congratulations, Stacey Tolchin and Megan Brewer for petitioner. One more thing. Remember, practitioners, the low standard that your client needs to pass to get into withholding-only proceedings. Quote, The non-citizen needs show only a reasonable possibility of persecution or torture, which has been defined to require a 10% chance that the non-citizen will be persecuted or tortured if returned to his or her home country. End quote. And that is Alvarado Herrera v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.